Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to support The Box of Oddities, we would be eternally grateful. Become a premium subscriber. Go to theboxofoddities.com and get signed up. You will get ad-free episodes. You'll get them a day early. You'll get a bonus episode every month. And you'll get access to The Box of Oddities back channel. Direct contact to us. And we appreciate it so much. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 225. The World is full of stories, stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So, um, you just you just got off the phone with your mom. You look frustrated. Are you, what, what was that all about? <laughs> well, she called to uh, thank me for the uh, gifts that I had sent her for Mother's Day. I uh-huh. got her a gift certificate to the greenhouse that she shops at so she can get herself some plants and I don't have to go to her house. And mm. that's nice. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the... In the course of the conversation, she once again let me know that there's nothing that she can watch on Roku, that Roku's out of television for her, and that is upsetting. How, how, okay, explain please. Well, so, okay, uh, Netflix, as she calls it, uh, and YouTube uh, specifically are the, the offenders, they, um, what they do is they just constantly delete things she wants to watch, uh, just to spite her. I see. Um, and so what happens is, you know how uh, YouTube has like recommended videos based on what you watch, and you know yeah, that yeah. shows you like what you've watched and uh, recommended based on your viewing. And yeah. if you liked this, you might like that. Blah blah. So those videos, those videos that you see in those categories. That's all that YouTube has for her to watch. I see. In her mind. She doesn't understand the search feature. I've told her many times that you can search for things. And she's like, well, I don't know what to search for. I don't know what they have. And I'm like, they have all the things. It's YouTube. (laughs) But she looks at it like YouTube is a company that just removes things and adds things that she can watch at like willy nilly. And it's a tops like 50 videos. I see. That's it. Okay. Wow. And she doesn't call them videos. She calls them apps because she's confused. <laughs> you okay? 
Love you. I just don't understand why, like, and and it's not that, like, it's not just that she doesn't understand it, okay, but she'll argue with you like you're wrong about it. No, that's all they have. No, it's not. There are literally millions of videos. Nope, there's only 40, and I've watched them all. This is boring. Netflix doesn't have anything for me to watch. Well, then I should stop paying for it. Well, no, I, I use it all the time. I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> Rant complete. <laughs> okay, you can't just say that. Okay, no, I, I was I was hoping you it would opened up a can. It would be a diversion, and we could we could move on to your story. <laughs> oh, it's my turn to go first. It is. It okay. is. Okay. All right. So I've been uh, in a real weird serial killer uh, kick. And I've been doing a lot of reading about um, kind of the, the not the surface stuff, but like the backstories behind serial killers oh. and some of the, the interesting uh, quirks. And I've noticed a lot of serial killers have big foreheads, and I think that's something we should look into. <laughs> All right. Um, so I thought today would be really fun to look into some serial killer close calls. Oh, so these are situations that I love. Uh, they are situations where some bad ass made their way away from a serial killer and don't get killed. All right, let's yeah. hear it. All right, so uh, Pam Prine had just begun a semester at Utah's Brigham Young University, and she was going to class when she noticed uh, a young hottie in the rain at the Wilkinson Center's patio covering. He got a little closer to her and he asked if she went to school there. And he said, I've got to go to a speaking engagement. So I was wondering if you might walk me to my car because she had an umbrella and he didn't want to get his suit stained. So she said yes, and uh, she thought that if she didn't, it would seem rude. And since they were at her church, you know, she thought it would reflect poorly on the church. Okay. And she yeah. wanted to be, you know, seen as welcoming, inviting, and, and appeasing to strangers. So she was wearing a, a raincoat with one of those wraparound belts, you know, sassy 70s style. And um, she said that they walked through several parts of the parking lot. And she said, where's your car? He said, it's just a little bit further. And they walked a few more steps. And she said, all of a sudden, I felt him grab the back of my coat. She said she jerked away and ran back a few steps before stopping and reconsidering and turning back to look at him. Was his car a Volkswagen? It's the, unclear. So he said, come back and get your umbrella. She said that he could keep it, and she ran off, later feeling very embarrassed because nothing had really happened. Mm. She just Maybe he was just, you know, leading her, as sometimes people do. They put your their hand on the back of you, like near your your lower back. Plus, you it know. was the 70s. It, yeah. People just felt the need to put their hands on you. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't alive in the 70s. So she felt embarrassed. She felt she'd made a fool of herself and that maybe she had set a bad example for like what that town and her church was like you know we're just a bunch of weirdos who run away from people um she did not report it to campus security mostly because she was embarrassed uh but she kept dwelling on it and she thought she'd overreacted plus he was very cute and so yeah 
uh, a little while later, she had moved to Arizona and she saw on TV there was a TV program about Ted Bundy. I knew it. It was a Volkswagen. She said she thought it was strange that there that he was in Provo and had killed a girl there, which is where she was from. And she thought about that experience that she had with this handsome man in the nice suit. So as she watched the rest of the show, they showed a picture of Ted Bundy. And she knew that it was the man that she ran into at BYU. She said, I was numb. I felt like I had melted away right there into my gray carpet. I kept crying and crying, and I kept saying, that was him. That was him. As they showed all the pictures of the girls he murdered, tall, thin, long hair parted in the middle, I couldn't sleep that night. I looked just like them. Oh, my God. Now, was this the woman? We we received an email a long time ago Mm -hmm. from one of the freaks whose mother was best friends with a woman in Utah that escaped Ted Bundy. Now, I think that woman was actually in his car. She's the one that was in the car. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So this is a a different story. You know, a couple people did. He wasn't very good. No, but he was good looking. That's the word. Handsome guy. She said after a night of not sleeping, the next day she woke up to her radio alarm and the first thing she heard was that Ted Bundy had been executed. Wow. Yeah. So it was the day before that she realized that... That was the guy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Nuts, right? Yeah. Uh, Deborah Harry, Blondie, she had a close encounter with Ted Bundy. What? Yeah. So it was in the early 70s. She said she was trying to get across town at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. She said, a little car kept coming around and offering me a ride. I said, no, but finally, I took the ride because I couldn't grab a cab. She said, I got into the car and the windows were all rolled up except for a tiny crack. The driver had an incredibly bad smell to him. That's when I got a weird feeling. I looked down and there were no door handles. Oh, my God. The inside of the car had been stripped and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. She said she wriggled her arm out the window and pulled open the door from the outside. She said, I didn't know how I did it, but I got out. He tried to stop me by spinning the car, but that sort of helped me fling myself out of the moving car. Afterwards, I saw him on the news and it was Ted Bundy. Oh, my God. Now, does she say what city this was in? Was She was in New York, right? Or, I believe so. Yeah. Wow. Holy crap. And I was like, well, that's weird because Blondie, you know, she doesn't really fit the mold, right? Right. But I looked back at photos. She's a natural brunette. And I found a picture of her from 1969. She's got brown hair parted in the middle. Mm -hmm. Of course, she's gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And everything, you know, I just love her. Anyway, um, not the point of the story. Okay, moving along. There's a uh, investigative historian named Peter Vronsky, who detailed his chance encounter with the killer, the New York Ripper, also known as the Times Square Ripper. He was stranded in New York without a lot of cash in 1979, and he settled for a cheap hotel in Times Square. And he was on his way in, but the elevator wasn't coming down. Um, So he waited and waited, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, but it seemed to be stuck upstairs. Later, he found out that Richard Cottingham had been staying in an upstairs room and had, in the process of murdering two young girls and lighting them on fire, had held open the elevator 
uh, not allowing it to move down the stairs, or I guess that wouldn't make any sense, down the chute. What's it called? (laughs) Shaft. Um, (laughs) Because he wanted to make sure that the fire had taken hold, that it wasn't just going to burn out or something. He wanted to make sure that there was a real fire. I see. And so he was holding the elevator, um, maybe watch it a little bit while he's fleeing away from it. So the reporter and author, Peter, um, couldn't get upstairs because Richard Cottingham was not letting the elevator go downstairs. Six months later, Cottingham was apprehended when police responded to reports of screams from uh, a room at the New Jersey Quality Inn Hotel. Um, That's May 22nd. So 18-year-old Leslie Ann O'Dell had been screaming because she knew that Cottingham was serious and he intended to take her life. He had handcuffed her and was torturing her in this hotel room. She realized she didn't have a chance unless somebody came to help her. So she just started screaming. Cops came. She was rescued. Oh, my and God. And the cops caught Richard Cottingham. He what? was convicted of murder and mutilation of five people across what? three trials. What was he thinking? He's in a hotel room and she's screaming. He didn't try to shut he, her up. Well, he did try, but uh, people enough. could hear her muffled screams. I'm guessing oh, it wasn't a very good hotel. Probably not. No. <laughs> but I guess there are some advantages to thin walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he was sentenced to nearly 300 years and Leslie Ann Odell survived. Wonderful. Now we're going to hop to Seattle in November 1982. Rebecca Gard was hitchhiking instead of waiting uh, for her usual bus to arrive. It was raining. She didn't want to wait for the bus. And uh, there were some ulterior motives as well, but we'll get to that. She was uh, trudging down the Pacific Highway for a while when a maroon Dodge pickup stopped to give her a ride. She described the driver as uh, being a man who seemed at first boring and dull, uh, but his eyes were a little concerning. There was something scary about his tiny, tiny eyes. Helter Skelter. So she asked if she could see his ID, and that would just kind of like settle her nerves. And so he showed her uh, his Kenworth Trucking Company ID uh, that said his name, Gary Ridgeway, on it, and she felt relieved. So the 20-year-old had uh, offered him a sex act for $20 so she could buy some weed, which is probably another reason why she opted to hitchhike, because she was looking to to score some some green. So she found a a local trailer park that she pointed to, and she said, we can pull off there. There's some woods nearby, and we can, you know, make this happen and move along. So they went into the woods, and she says, all of a sudden, he started grabbing me, and we're just rolling all over the place. He tried keeping my mouth shut and covering my nose, and I just kept trying to breathe. He was smothering me on the ground. He was sitting on top of me, and all I could think was, no, this is not my time. I want to grow up. I want to get married. I want to have babies. And I was like, this guy is not going to kill me. I don't belong here. I'm in the wrong place. So she managed to push the killer or the would-be killer, up against a tree, temporarily stunning him. He must have, like, smucked his head or something. Mm. And she got to her feet and ran to a nearby trailer to find help. She uh, described when she got to the door and she knocked on the door and someone answered, she couldn't actually think of what words to say. And she said the only thing that came to her mind was, please help me. My thought is, like, do you say 
like he's trying to kill me or help or like the most basic primal words. What do you say? What you don't have any experience to know how to cry for help in that way. You don't. I would just be like, see, that surprises me. I I would have suspected you would have an entire speech rehearsed (laughs) just in case. I mean, that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Um, And. Probably during any sort of interaction, I would have listed uh, in my head things to keep in mind. But anyway, (laughs) um, she did real well. And she is the only known survivor of Gary Ridgway's murderous attacks. Uh, He became known as the Green River Killer. Of course. He killed as many as 80 women, many of whom were sex workers. And uh, it's interesting because so many of the serial killers that I've been reading about recently um, did prey upon sex workers. Right. And um, there are a few, including... Uh, Richard Cottingham, who spoke of his killing of sex workers and saying that he was like punishing them, like it was, it was, oh, it I was see. immoral what they were doing. So he was killing them. <laughs> sure, that which makes, is insane. That makes complete sense because it's. I mean, obviously, it's they're a vulnerable population. That's why right. it's easy to kill them. That's why you're lazy. So you shouldn't be the Times Square Ripper. You should be the lazy killer. Lazy. Lazy. I'm just saying. Maybe Gary Ridgway should have been the lazy river killer. Oh, that sounds kind of relaxing. It does. Yeah. Mm. No. No. Anyway, um, so <laughs> he uh, ended up plea bargaining and agreed to disclose the locations of some still missing women. And so he was spared the death penalty, but he did receive a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. What year was that? Uh, he pled guilty in 2003. Okay. And again, Rebecca Gard, the only survivor. What a beast. What a beast. See, that's that's a great approach to serial killers. Let's talk about the people who got away. Yes. I love that. Me too. I tried to find more about Leslie Ann Odell, who was the survivor of the Times Square Ripper. Um, but I kept coming up on a, an artist who actually had some really cool works that were really dark. And mm-hmm. I wondered, is this the same woman? You know, is she still alive? I don't know. I couldn't find anything about what happened to her after um, other than she survived. It would be really cool if she was that artist. Right? That'd be really cool. I would like that, but I couldn't find any details. And the artist pages that I found were all super vague. So, I mm. mean, that that leads me to believe that it is, in fact, her. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Leslie Ann O'Dell, check out her art. Either way, it's cool. <laughs> that thing on the side? No. It's that thing in the middle. From the Freaks Facebook group, uh, Erica writes, Is there anything that makes you completely irrationally angry that is absolutely inconsequential? (laughs) (laughs) I love this. Yes. I'd like to start by saying stale laundry smell. Like if you leave laundry, freshly washed laundry too long before you dry it, that smell it has. Mm. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's true. It doesn't even it's not even like you just don't like it. You get you Get weird. Physically angry. Yeah. I can feel the rage like starting in my stomach and and (laughs) creeping into my chest. And you're not typically a rageful kind of person. I'm not. (laughs) But old laundry, man, that'll do it. That'll do it. Legendary sports broadcaster of Maine, George Hale, told me once that he hates the word yummy. Like, (laughs) he's like, that is a child's word. And adults who use that word are ridiculous. (laughs) 
I and I think about that every time I hear the word yummy. Yeah. Bree writes, when a parent claims to be babysitting while the other parent is out. Yep. <laughs> no, I'm with you there. That's infuriating. Number four, Sarah writes, I absolutely hate the sound of Walmart scooters. Number three, Janet writes, signs that replace the C with a K, like country corner. I could never go in there. Number two, Danielle says, when people end their rants with, thanks for coming to my TED talk. (laughs) I've done it. It happens. I only end with thanks for coming to my TED talk when my rant was about something completely inconsequential and stupid. <laughs> mm-hmm. So never a real thing. Okay, so you use the uh, the TED talk line ironically. Then. Sort of, okay. I guess. Or when I realize that I'm being ridiculous, mm-hmm. which is often. <laughs> like a lot of times when I complain about things that you do, mm-hmm. I will say it knowing it's insane. That, that it bothers you or that I do it? No, that it bothers me. Like, sweetheart, I know that you're trying to help and you've loaded the dishwasher and I love you. Uh, however, why must you do it this way? <laughs> Knives go on this side. <laughs> she has some very specific rules when it comes to loading the dishwasher. And unloading the dishwasher. It should always be... Silverware rack, bottom drawer, top drawer. And for some reason, you like to go in the exact opposite direction, and I think you do it on purpose. No, no. It just seems to me you start with whatever's easiest to reach. See, it's psychological when you think about it, because it's easier to empty the top rack of the dishwasher. So you've got that completed. It was relatively easy. And then you feel like, oh, I did that. Now I can build on my progress by unloading the bottom drawer. You need to build up your pride in order to finish emptying the dishwasher? Yeah. (laughs) What number are we on? One. Okay. Stephen writes, at this point, it would be shorter to list the things that don't bother me. (laughs) Thanks, guys. That was fun. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. 
And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. They've been married longer than they've been doing this podcast, and they're still talking to each other. Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth continue with The Box of Oddities. How would you pronounce this name? K-E-I-L-A. Kayla? Keela? K-E-I-L-A. I'd have to see it. At the bottom. Keela? All right, we're going to go with Keela. Apologies if it's Kayla. Sorry. Keela writes, hey guys, about 10 years ago, my partner and I were living in our truck around the state of Oregon. We'd been told about ambergris. Yeah. We had that in the uh, in the previous episode, the uh, very valuable whale poop. So they were combing the beaches. I'm just going to paraphrase here. They were combing the beaches looking for ambergris. They did have an address in order to send a sample if they found some. Okay. They were thinking, we're going to be rich. A few weeks into uh, some intense looking, we found a small, round, stinky ball on the beach. It had tiny pieces of what looked like shell, And we're convinced that we had found some ambergris. So put it in a paper bag, put it in the glove box of the truck and sent a small piece to the address with a return email for them to contact us. We were so excited and dreamed of all the things we were going to do with the money. We waited for what felt like months and, and it probably was. We got an email from the perfume company. They had received our sample and had done an initial test and said it was in fact not ambergris, but seal shit. (laughs) I imagine their initial test was opening the box because I went to the glove box to remove the paper bag and toss it out when a wave of putrid smell overtook the truck. (laughs) We lived in that truck for about four more months with this horrific smell 
And then we continued to own the truck for a few more years. Oh, man. Every time we opened the glove box, it smelled like the ocean took a dump inside of it. <laughs> oh, that sounds terrible. Be careful when searching for ambergris. <laughs> we are, what, two months into this uh, COVID-19 self-isolation, social distancing thing, sure. give or take. Well, according to an Atlas Obscura article... As it continues to kind of sweep around the world, it has put billions into isolation. Many people are are trying to stay connected with their friends and family. Mm -hmm. More than 80% of the people surveyed in the United States and the UK report spending more time on their phones, squinting at their screens, according to data published by the World Economic Forum. These little screens have become pretty much a lifeline. Have they not? I mean, we, we always rely heavily on our cell phones, but during this time of isolation, I think we've become even more dependent on it, and that's what the study says. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I know that I got an update the other day saying that my screen time had gone down from seven hours a day. <laughs> So that's wow. good. At least I've been using it less. You got it down to seven hours. No, it's down from seven hours. Oh. At one point, I have been looking at it seven hours a day. <laughs> God. But I've been doing a lot of podcast stuff yeah, and research true. and such. And I, I don't use the laptop. I just use my phone. I'm rarely awake seven hours a day. So <laughs> I've also been searching for shower fixtures. So, I mean, my life is torn between serial killers and shower fixtures. I think we can all say that. Well, yes, we've become more dependent, even more than we already are right. on our phones during this social distancing uh, period. But that's not, this isn't exactly new. Decades ago, Bell and AT&T ran ads really pushing the whole reach out and touch someone. That was their, their slogan back sure. then. Reach out and touch someone. The ads... Uh, they they usually involve something like a kid at college for the first year calling his mom and, yeah. you know, and there would be tears on both ends of the phone. Grandma talking to uh, the parents of her new grandkid. Sister getting ready for a date. Brother rushing in from baseball practice. So they were pushing the whole, you know, social interaction thing, AT&T and, and, and Bell Telephone, for quite a while. But it wasn't always the way. In fact, those who invented the telephone did not foresee, down through the decades and, and century, ultimately, what the ultimate use of the phone would be. How people would use the phone. Not by a long shot. They didn't anticipate it being such an important part of social interaction. Right. Well, it's shocking to me how little I use my phone for phone calls. That is true. It is shocking. So let's start at the beginning. Just a kind of a, a brief rundown here. In March of 1876, U.S. patent number 174465 for the telephone is granted to Alexander Graham Bell. Many people believe that Elisha Gray actually should have been credited for inventing the telephone. In fact, this is called the Bell-Gray controversy. It goes something like this. Bell's lead partner had his lawyer file Bell's patent application for the telephone in the U.S. Patent Office in Washington on February 14, 1875, according to Wikipedia. Gray's lawyer filed Gray's caveat the same day 
Under the U.S. Patent Laws of 1876, a patent was granted to the first to invent, not the first to file, and therefore it should not have made any difference whether or not whether Bell or Gray filed first. Got it. The popular belief was that Bell arrived at the patent office an hour or two before his rival. You've probably heard that. That did not happen, according to historians. But how do you know who invented first, if not for who filed for the patent first? I mean, couldn't you just say, oh, I... I made this two years ago. Nah. I, I, I'm Whoa. not. Sorry. Because that's how people all. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this cummerbund's so tight. Ooh. In fact, that was the first thing that was actually said on a telephone. Right. Ahoy, my cummerbund. <laughs> <laughs> According to Gray's account, his patent caveat was taken to the U.S. Patent Office a few hours before Bell's application. Shortly after the patent office opened. So his patent application because it was the first one in, according to him, was at the bottom of the basket. Bell's application came in around noon, so it was higher on the top of the basket. In addition to that, Bell's patent attorney paid for the fee on the site and insisted that they file his application first. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about this. Uh, One was that uh, the patent agent was an alcoholic and that he was secretly giving information from Gray's patent to Alexander Graham Bell in exchange for whiskey. Oh, okay. Well, I think a lot of things get blamed on alcoholics and maybe just chill out. (laughs) Yes. Also, didn't Gray work for Bell? I don't believe so. No. Okay. Maybe that's, maybe I'm getting You're thinking of Edison and Tesla. Yes. Sorry. My bad. No, that's cool that you knew that. I've got my uh, (laughs) invention geniuses mixed up. Regardless of, of that controversy, the patent was awarded to Bell in March of 1876. Now, at the time, the main users of the electrical telegraph, which is was the uh, the forerunner to the telephone, mm-hmm. were post offices, railway stations, governmental centers, ministries, stock exchanges, a few newspapers. And these phones were just connected um, one to another. If you think of like the old cans and string thing, mm-hmm. there were no exchanges, no telephone exchanges initially. You had a telephone and you could talk to one person. And it wasn't over great distances. It was just, you know, in the the area. had to have been fucking terrible. Yeah, your mother calling you up all the time, telling you there's nothing on Netflix. No, I mean, just like deciding, you have to decide. It's like choosing your MySpace top eight. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm what, number nine? Excuse me? I don't get a telephone line? I only have enough money for one. It's got to be Domino's. So primarily that was the focus of their marketing strategy was this telephone is going to replace the telegraph. Who has telegraphs? Well, those aforementioned companies and agencies. Got it. This, it wasn't intended for mass use. It was just a speedier, better way to do that thing that they were already doing with telegraphs. Yeah, it was just a tool. Got it. And again, because there was this was pre-switchboard, it was a rather limited tool. Yeah, clunky. But then the switchboard came along, and that provided telephone service for small areas. You've seen the pictures of the old, old-timey operators with the little plugs. And, yeah. Hey, Sadie, get me Charles down at the barbershop. You know, that kind of thing. You'd crank the phone in. And, yeah. And then- Cooperstown, 154. After the manual operators, along came the automatic machine switching equipment. 
it interconnects individual subscriber lines for calls made between those people who were subscribing to the telephone service at the time. This made it possible for them to uh, call each other at home or at business or public spaces. It opened up a bigger amount of options. And according to this article in Atlas Obscura, it gave the impetus for the creation of a new industrial uh, sector. Atlas Obscura reached out to Claude S. Fisher, who uh, was the author of America Calling, A Social History of the Telephone to 1940, about how phones have helped people connect, sometimes to the frustration of the phone company. It was originally marketed to businesses, as I said, uh, as a business device, like an improved telegraph. Sure. The Bell Company started marketing to households eventually. When it did, it focused for 30 years on practical household management. Get the phone for your wife so she can call the doctor or get the groceries or call the police or you can call her when you're on your way home with your drunk buddies. You know, that, that kind of thing. Get the food on the table, woman. Right. So the social element of having a telephone was ignored and resisted by the industry for about the first half of its history. Wow. Only the rich had phones in their house, and they were just thought of as this tool to call in your grocery order and to keep tabs on your wife. It was not a social device. It certainly wasn't the one that it would become. So what changed? The answer? The 1918 flu epidemic. Oh, really? Oh, is this how you got to this story? Yeah. I knew it. In early 1918, only around a third of American households had phones, according to the New York Times. But because of the isolation and the sickness, phone ownership shot through the roof. Now it seemed like overnight, almost every house had a phone. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it certainly seemed like that to people at the time. For decades, people with phones had been largely discouraged for using them for just gabbing because most towns early on only had a few lines to serve everyone. Oh, so you kind of had to share. Yeah, it was like a party, the old party line. Then when the flu began to devastate communities, some phone companies begged people to stay off their phones, keep it to a minimum. In October 1918, for instance, the Michigan State Telephone Company took out an ad in a Battle Creek newspaper asking locals to, quote, please restrict your use of the telephone to calls which are absolutely essential, thus freeing up operators to attend to the essential business of the community. Similar messages went out in New Jersey, North Carolina, and uh, the ad asked people to refrain from using the telephone except when necessary so that prompt service can be given to the sick. So rather than just make it better so that people can talk, they were just like, (laughs) stop talking to each other. We're sick of it. Now, it was a combination of things. The fact that uh, more people got phones Mm -hmm. because they wanted to be able to to reach medical assistance if necessary, to, to keep tabs on loved ones. Right. But then they became bored during isolation and they would just get on the fucking phone and talk for, I don't know, screen time was like seven hours. That's ridiculous. Back then. <laughs> and so the phone companies were like, please cut it out. We don't have enough of... Phoning we don't have for you to phone all this stop much. Stop all the phonage. Interestingly... The people who used the phone the most were women. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about the whole hunter-gatherer thing and 
how men evolved to be more quiet because they were hunting and women are more social because they were gathering. They talked amongst themselves. They probably invented language and taught it to men. And probably men were at work doing work things. So once the flu epidemic subsided, the telephone companies saw a marketing opportunity. The shift was not until the 1920s, the early 20s, when the industry came around to see that social uses of a telephone was not a bug in the system, but a feature. Uh, the Bell Company switched from trying to repress chit-chat on phones to marketing phones as a great way to stay in touch with family and friends. Fisher, in his book, goes on to say he sees voice-to-voice -voice communication today as part of a package of diverse and more flexible one-to-one -one communications, including email, texting, and the like. The pattern now for voice calls is you text one, two, three times to a person and then say, ah, it's just easier to talk. Let's make an appointment. Mm -hmm. If you just cold call somebody now, it's considered rude. That's how much it's changed. Yeah, I've always felt that way. You should send me a letter first. <laughs> like before texting, I was like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's really interesting. Okay, so the 20s, it would make sense because I can remember like my mother's mother was a huge phone talker person. She didn't leave her place much. She was... Um, always, always talking on the phone. And I wonder if she was part of that generation, you know, who now could do that mm. and were encouraged to do that. And it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I know a few people like that too. <laughs> so the 1918 flu epidemic completely changed the way that we use the phone and how we look at it. People back in 1918, a big part of... Um, socializing was getting together, maybe sitting on the front porch, having a lemonade mm. and just talking to people. And so when these people were isolated in 1918, that's how they kept their sanity was they used the phone to talk to people. Sure. Will something similar happen after the 2020 COVID-19 epidemic? I'm wondering. I was thinking the same thing. Like, I used to work at a convenience store in the tiniest town ever called Garland in Maine. And it was an adorable place where in the morning, very early, all of the, like, local farmers would come over. They'd get their coffee. They'd get a donut. And they'd stand there and shoot the shit and get mud all over the floor <laughs> that I had just cleaned mm -hmm. the night before. Anyway, um, and... I think about like, are they doing Zoom calls now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, that's a, that's where I'm going with this. Already we're seeing more people doing Zoom meetings and having FaceTime visits. Mm. Is this going to become the new norm? I remember as a kid growing up, AT&T would have these futuristic ads of, hey, you're going to have a video phone in the future. Right, back to the future. And it never caught on. Even though they had the technology, it did not catch on. And now, of course, today we've got you know Skype and Zoom and FaceTime. FaceTime. And all of, and it's just, it's become just part of that social package. Right. Will it become more dominant now? Will we see more telecommuting now? Will we see more people working from home? Businesses have been reluctant in many cases to let people work from home. But now that they've been forced to do it and they see it works and they see maybe this saves some money. Right. Is it going to become the new norm? It makes so much more sense to uh, not 
go back to the norm, but create a new norm. Like to me, at least, you know, we've talked about on multiple occasions how so many meetings can be emails. Yes. Um, And there's no, I, I cannot grasp the obsession with meetings like what why all the time why Mm, i've worked for people before who are like oh we're gonna have a meeting about that why there's no reason for it i hate meetings with a fiery passion i know i it's insane it especially if you don't feed me like if we're having (laughs) some sort of conference or something and you bring bagels Fine. But if you just want me to show up and sit there with a pad of paper that I will write nothing on, I am going to bounce. That's how I feel, too. And the bigger the corporation that I've worked for in the past, the more the stupid, useless meetings would take place. (laughs) Um, We actually had to have at one company I worked at a programming meeting every Tuesday at 10, whether we needed it or not, just to tell the corporation, yes, we had this meeting. And oftentimes we just sit there and drink coffee for an hour. It was a total waste of friggin' time. I hate that. Mm. Anyway, I'm glad we're podcasters now. We're our own boss. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And we wouldn't be able to do it if it were not for you. Yeah, that's something I am... Just so grateful for this has been a weird and scary and upsetting time. And I cannot express to you how grateful I am for this community and how loving and sweet you are and how much we just like swoop together to create this this loving pile. And that sounds terrible. Sorry (laughs) Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. that. That was a movie I saw once. (laughs) I think it was the first one I rented, actually. I just really appreciate you guys. And I I really, it just, it blows my mind yeah. that, that this is something that, that I can do and, like, do it. Like, yeah. I have to write this down on tax papers. Like, this is what I do. <laughs> yes. And that's it's fucking a- unreal. <laughs> you can't even, I it blows my mind friggin' mind. Mm, yeah. And we get presents. I wanted to mention Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank Sonia. you so much to Sonia. Sonia sent us a little gift packages and I like not knowing what to expect. I'm ripping open these packages because I'm still like that. I get a package and I'm like <laughs> And I rip it open like a child on Christmas. She said one day we, we went in to pick up uh, some packages that had been sent to us. And there were, I found like three or four, something like that. Kat's response was, what is this magical Santa shit? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got this adorable mug uh, with a pug on it. And it says dragon ass, which yeah. is uh, belongs to me yeah. and exclusively me now. Yeah. And she sent me a, a car freshener, uh, a unique scent, squirrel and underpants. So... <laughs> Thank you so much for I that, love it. Thank Sonia. you. And thank you for hanging out with us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Hold up! 
Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.